Spirit Catholic Radio, KVSS. We are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and... Chris McGregor. And today, Chris, we're joined by Mike Adams. Mike is a criminology professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and one of the nation's leading critics of the quote-unquote diversity movement in academia. He writes a nationally syndicated column for townhall.com, he and his wife live in Wilmington, North Carolina. And Mike joins us today to talk about his book, Feminists Say the Darndest Things, A Politically Incorrect Professor Confronts Women, spelled W-O-M-Y-N, huh. on campus. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the program. Hey, great to be with you. You uh, an Art Linkletter fan when you were growing up? or? <laughs> well, you know... I think I stole that one from them, didn't I? Yeah, well, it's... Come a, up with, uh, with a lot of variations on that. Atheists say the darndest things. Liberals say the darndest things. I guess maybe this could be the first in the series. All right. Well, there you go. Now, I'm glad to see we're at the birth of something fun. The thing is, Mike, I really enjoyed feminists say the darndest things. You know, and as a female, I mean, I'd like to think of myself as a feminist of sorts when it comes right. to true, authentic feminism. But the feminists you're talking about, oh, I think I recognized them when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. Do they still exist? I'm afraid they're they're on their last leg, but they're they're getting angry, angrier and angrier, sort of like a wounded animal. It's uh, it's a fierce form of feminism that we're seeing on college campuses today that I, I think really uh, cannot be defined as some sort of a political movement that's seeking equality for people regardless of gender. It's morphed into something very different than that today. Here, I thought they just got older and just swore on uh, a morning talk television. Uh, you know, like Diane Keaton and <laughs> Jane Fonda. But uh, so, what defines a, a feminist according to those you've encountered? Well, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. Today, I think that feminism on college campuses really has become a um, it's become a political movement that seeks unlimited rights for women uh, without corresponding responsibilities via the suppression of the criticism of women. I, I should say feminist uh, specifically. And, you know, I think that uh, on college campuses we are seeing a very uh, humorless form of feminism that uh, uh, really has as its greatest goal, uh, aside from maximizing abortions and sexual pleasure, it has as its greatest goal simply um, reducing criticism of itself uh, via the implementation of speech codes and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of the the most damaging things done to my own gender is done by feminists. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. You know, you look on at um, you know the biggest part of my new book really deals with the, the campus uh, censorship uh, issue, and I, I have this whole section in there called "Why um, Feminists Hate Men Who Aren't Gay," and of course, that's <laughs> just a joke. That title. Uh, because mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that, you know, very often these feminists really don't hate men. In many cases, I'm convinced, they sort of feign outrage or anger, shouting, I'm offended, just in an effort to shut down debate, to, to win whatever political uh, advances that they seek to gain on the college campus. And see, that's where it comes into uh, the issue of actually damaging mainstream women. Because when you have uh, speech codes and things like that on campuses, uh, they sort of reinforce this notion that women are somehow uh, emotionally I- inferior. And I think that's very damaging and cuts against 
the original goals of feminism. Yeah, it always really bothers me when they, they say that if a certain speaker comes that does not agree with their certain political ideological bents, that somehow that's anti-intellectual, when really what's anti-intellectual is not allowing a dialogue to occur between the two ideologies. It's usually just one-sided. It's usually right. a, to the left. And if anybody has a counterpoint to that, they are ridiculed. They are spoken about as though anything they have to say is hate speech. It's just, it's mm. very, very, very sad. I, I'm really disturbed by uh, the portion of the book where I investigated um, Bucknell University uh, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. And the very notion that they would not support, they being the Gender and Women's Studies Department, uh, the idea that they would not support a lecture by uh, Christina Hoff Summers uh, was amazing, saying that she wasn't intellectual. She's been on the New York Times bestseller list. And they turn around and have this thing known as the Sex Workers Art Show that I, I think a lot of people are starting to hear about that's going mm-hmm. across the country. Yeah. And they actually have uh, transvestites running around, stripping and things of that nature. And it's tough to see how any of that uh, has any intellectual merit. And it just sort of has feminists these days acting a lot like drunken, sex-crazed uh, frat boys. And again, that's not in the best interest of women. I jokingly referred to, in the beginning, Jane Fonda and her use of the C-word for women is as, right. as, as damaging, I think, as the N-word for African-Americans. And yet she, with the advent of the vagina monologue, somehow our young girls on college campuses are called to embrace that, and that somehow liberates them. And I think it only demeans and diminishes them. Yes, there was indeed a time when uh, it seemed as if I was hearing a lot of consistent argument coming from feminist circles, uh, talking about the need to avoid uh, objectivizing women. I can't imagine, you know, running around on a stage um, chanting the names of your sex organs. I can't really imagine how anything uh, could be worse for women in terms of causing them to be objectified and and sort of uh, seen as sex objects. this is indeed a very, very confused um, movement, and I think the problem began when they began to focus largely upon uh, the issue of abortion. Uh, it began to be all about their sexual gratification, and that's how I think we've gotten into um, uh, this really strange realm of moral relativism that seems to be um, representing the movement today. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, Mike, why do you suppose it is that feminism has evolved that way? You know, I mean, becoming really, you know, when, when you look at, at the view when Rosie O'Donnell was on there and everything, I mean, they were, they were just really hostile toward Christianity, seemed to be very supportive of Marxism. Where, where did things kind of turn here? Well, we, we need to be careful here because um, uh, many social movements suffer from something similar, you know, maybe not to this degree. Uh, but you know what happens when you have a, a social movement that is defined and rallied around a certain set of goals. You know what can happen when they achieve those goals. You know, people who have invested a whole lot of time in the movement are not likely to just walk away from it. Uh, right. There's a whole psychological theory behind that known as cognitive distance theory, and, and sometimes people will sort of keep the group together, but then they'll have to come up uh, with a new set of goals. And because they have been so spectacularly successful in achieving the things they've wanted to achieve, uh, they've had, you know, really a complete recycling of goals 
but somewhere along the way, they have inserted some new goals that really are inconsistent uh, with the previous ones. And, you know, things like this happen in a lot of different social movements. You can make the argument today uh, that the NAACP, uh, for example, uh, fought for a long time to get rid of segregation, and some of the things they're doing today kind of moving back in the direction of segregation. So um, some movements um, tend to get lost, but few do such a radical about-face. Mm. I think, you know, as you point out towards the beginning of the book, that feminists would rather solve a problem by changing society rather than changing their own behavior. Right. Uh, Now, that is indeed part of the larger socialist mindset. And, uh, you you know, I think one of the reasons why they embrace socialism, of course, and and the whole idea of the nanny state, is that, you know, feminists really, that's a small portion of the adult population. You look at at females, probably a quarter of the females out there at most uh, today, will consider themselves to be feminist because of the bad name of feminism in recent years. And that means that we are potentially talking about, you know, around an eighth of the general population when you start to include men. So how on earth uh, do you go about winning political victories uh, if you constitute such a small portion of the population? Uh, well, the answer to that question is that they have to sort of uh, begin to form coalitions with other victim groups. And you see a heavy emphasis at women's centers on issues of race, and you also see a heavy emphasis on uh, issues of sexual orientation. And, and so uh, what you see is this, uh, you, you know, that strategy is very Marxist. In Das Kapital and in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx talked about the need uh, for different uh, disenfranchised groups to come together. And I think that's where the link between feminism and Marxism began. Well, I think another thing that just roars so much to the forefront, not only in your book, but just just in general, I think everybody can sense this, is the issue of abortion and right. the radical acceptance of abortion as something right. that to be held up as. And one thing that you made me stop and think for a second was that feminists can't face the reality of, as you term it, gendercide. Mm-hmm. that abortion, actually, more female babies are killed in the womb worldwide than males in a huge proportion in many countries because of abortion. And we are never going to know exactly what those numbers are. You know, I made it clear in the book that I'm not making any claim whatsoever to knowing exactly what the numbers are. You know, the U.N. has tackled the issue in some of its reports. And the fact of the matter is it's a toss-up here in America, but when you start throwing in Asian ladies, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there can be no doubt but that uh, it really is a grossly disproportionate number of women who are being uh, aborted and uh, we'll never know exactly what that proportion is. But another thing that's related to that that's very disturbing, where we do have a very good statistic on uh, uh, the overrepresentation, is the race issue. Mm. My God, Margaret Sanger believed in eugenics and was all into, was really on board uh, with Hitler's program mm. and would have been very proud of the fact that uh, even though blacks constitute a uh, 12.7% of the American population, they are 35% of the abortions. And none of this is consistent with building a Marxist coalition of uh, different victim groups. Uh, uh, the feminist movement is really, really a mess today, a uh, mess of logical contradictions. And I think the worst thing uh, in terms of its future uh, that doesn't bode well for the movement is just these kinds of facts that are beginning to leak into the general public. You experienced it firsthand on college campuses. Would you say this is the the major battleground? Oh, oh, yeah, there's no question about it. You know, when I got involved in writing columns and giving speeches 
uh, about these issues uh, six years ago, you know, I realized immediately that even something as simple as having uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, having a little competition with Planned Parenthood at the Women's Resource Center, by having a crisis pregnancy center's pamphlets uh, available at the physical center and their information, their contact information available on the website, uh, none of this um, was allowable uh, mm. through the tax-funded, taxpayer-funded women's resource centers. And I noticed from the very beginning that they are very afraid uh, of even getting a single pro-life foot in the door. Mm. And I have other more extreme examples of that on college campuses, like uh, uh, Sally Jacobson at Northern Kentucky University, who actually physically vandalized and stole crosses from a pro-life display on campus. Uh, if that doesn't show you that we're in a cultural war and that the college campus is the principal battleground, um, I give up on trying to provide uh, cogent examples. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing stuff. It is. It is indeed. But fortunately, I should add in that case that uh, because the school newspaper caught Sally Jacobson doing that, uh, they had to fire her as head of the Women's Center. <laughs> the question is, how does a thief and a vandal become a professor emeritus of English and a college administrator in the first place? I think that's the $64,000 question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mike, I know that uh, in in our circles here in Catholic Radio and stuff, when we talk about feminism, we talk about an authentic feminism, that women really celebrate the fact that they are female and everything right. that goes with it. You know, well, you the, embrace and protect your fertility. Absolutely. You don't try to, you know. You know, with, with this kind of hijacking of this particular brand of feminism, what then can we really do to improve the image of authentic feminism? How do we bring? How do we go about bringing that back to the forefront? Boy, I'll tell you, the first thing that we can see, uh, we should see, is I think the college campuses, the women's centers, uh, becoming involved in the global human rights movement. Uh, I had a chance a few weeks ago, believe it or not, to get on the phone and call about a dozen women's resource centers across the country mm-hmm. and just try to talk to them and uh, get them to at least consider uh, you know, getting involved in, in having speakers and programs uh, on issues like uh, child sexual slavery in Southeast Asia. Uh, we know that lots of little girls are being kidnapped and taken across uh, national lines, and they're being put in brothels as young as five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that that's a, a sad situation. We also know that there is this terrible mistreatment of women, of course, obviously, uh, getting clitorectomies and things of that nature, uh, suffering from female genital mutilation in Islamic, Islamic clans in Africa and in other places in the world. I think that the, the best way that the uh, uh, feminist movement can begin to regain some credibility is to take on this movement of, of global equality. Right. I mean, once you've achieved equality, not of outcome, but of opportunity in the United States of America, there's no need to, to, to devolve into an interest in sexuality and, and, and the vagina monologues and things that they're doing. They should reach out and expand and try and do some of the same things they've done in America in other nations, and I think that's their best hope for the future. Yeah, because there are, again, there are so many things about feminism that is good in the way that, you know, the, the dignity of each human person and how we treat right. one another, uh, a fairness in so many different ways, but that doesn't mean we have to reduce ourselves to behavior that is in many ways grotesque or demeans ourselves, right. but we haven't been able to dialogue that talk very well, have we? Oh, you, you know, I, I think that the, the best thing that we can do 
uh, right now is to continue basically doing what I, I try to do in the book, which is to use humor and to ridicule what they're doing and to sort of shame them into doing something different that has some more dignity. But, you know, um, I, I really try in some of the columns that I write and at the end of this book to give some, some helpful suggestions. And I think, you know, we need to start focusing upon uh, caring for children in other parts of the world, including the national adoption of little girls from places like Asia. Uh, you know, it, it broke my heart a couple of years ago when uh, I actually watched uh, a documentary on uh, child prostitution in mm-hmm. Asia. Yeah. And to see these little girls sitting on couches playing with toys one minute, and then to see an adult man, some tourist, come in, uh, you know, and, and take them into a room to have sex with them, uh, mm-hmm. it breaks your heart. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that uh, no amount of chanting uh, and walking around stages, chanting uh, names of your genitalia is going to do anything to help that. Uh, they have to radically, radically uh, abandon uh, their self-absorbed, uh, uh, sex-crazed absurdity, and begin to focus outward. And, um, you, you know, I, I think that that's their only hope. And I think there's a great need for conservatives and liberals, feminists and anti-feminists, to get together and straighten this movement out. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, and when you talk, uh, again, about true feminism, I, I can't help but think of those sisters and religious communities of Christians who have been out there in those areas, in Asia, in Africa, assisting people on the front lines, trying to bring about that justice and uh, fairness for all those people. And yet Christianity is attacked by many militant feminists as somehow as oppressive while they're actually out there doing the work. Oh, yeah. And and there's nothing that can be said in response to that. And there's nothing that I can say to add to it. Um, it, it makes no sense uh, except to consider, uh, you know, not only that um, if more feminists were to embrace Christianity, would they have to to change their own behavior, including their sexual behavior, uh, they would also be forced to leave their comfort zone and do some of the tough work that Christians are doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what made Rosie O'Donnell's statement. So, uh, I mean, we still talk about it years later, but that somehow they're uh, on a par with Muslim fundamentalists when women in those societies are treated with such a lack of dignity. What's really remarkable, I was giving a a, a speech at uh, Pepperdine University, and uh, there was a gay male student in the back who, who... it was very angry at me for some reason for some of the comments I made about feminism. And he says, you know, uh, he, he said, we still live in a patriarchal society. And I stopped him and I said, no. I said, we women in this country live in a country that is the best country in the world for, for a woman to be female in. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't even finish the sentence before the entire auditorium of women began to applaud. And the fact of the matter is, there are a lot of radicals out there, a lot of radical leftists who are trying to speak for women who don't represent their true opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with Mike Adams today, author of the book Feminists Say the Darndest Things, a politically incorrect professor confronts women on campus. And sprinkled throughout the book here, actually kind of the centerpiece, uh, are a lot of really head-scratching, almost uh, hilarious stories. Yeah, they are. funny to read what people say. You know, Mike, I'm sure these are real, but just uh, real quickly, do you have one where even you and all the encounters you've had just astounded you? Yeah, absolutely. When when they established an orgasm awareness week at UNC Chapel Hill, I I thought (laughs) it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen until I started to, you know, someone told me about it, I started to look into it at what kinds of events that they had. And they're actually building a sex toy museum uh, right in the middle of the campus at UNC Chapel Hill. 
Oh, and sure. uh, it, it was amazing when they talked about having, you know, an 80-year-old vibrator on display and things like that. I had to write to the president and just mock what they were doing and saying, you know, do you folks have no sense of, uh, of shame whatsoever? What was so amazing was, and the amazing thing is people read this and they can't believe that it happens. The woman forwarded my email to her mother, who then filed a hostile environment sexual harassment report uh, against my uh, against me uh, with my employers. And there's actual physical evidence there uh, of the complaint that was filed. And this stuff is so insane. Uh, this idea that feminists should be as offensive as possible while being simultaneously offended and victims. Uh, I think is the toughest thing to believe that it's actually going on in the real world, but it is, and we need to recognize this before our daughters go off to college. Yeah, I agree. Do you see it changing? I mean, are you finding campuses where the the culture is turning around? Uh, not yet, but uh, I'm going to keep on finding until I do see it. I'll report back in a few years. All right. Very good. Well, Mike, we appreciate it, and uh, also well, the fact so that yeah, I mean, you know, when when you talk about the dialogue and and, and everything, not very ladylike, so. Uh, I thought it was a really good touch to put the family-friendly icons into the book, too. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think we could have published the book. So thank you. And uh, I don't think I could have read it myself. Right. That's amazing. Mike Adams, Feminists Say the Darndest Things. Mike, we really appreciate your taking time with us today. Thanks so much. Take care.